We've got stories of Midwestern carnivals, the start of the Great War, why charity shows are scams, and a mayor who hated women's wrestling. It's the tale of Cora Livingston, Part 7. Crazy territory stories, double crosses, and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. You did it. You pressed a button. I pressed a button. It hit was a record button. Are you listening to like a listen button? I don't know how buttons work. I'm not terribly bright. What am I talking about? What's even happening? Who am I? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling promoter, a pro wrestling booker, but more importantly for today, I am a pro wrestling historian. And I am here with my co-host. She recently defeated Effie. She waterboarded Effie. And she came in at number 34 on the Outsports index of queer wrestlers it's heidi howitzer how the hell are you the 34th most gay that's that's what i am apparently uh, <laughs> uh but yeah no i did not push a button i did not consent to any of this i guess i i guess i went to the the meeting link so that that condemned me for part seven always read the small print before you join a zoom group <laughs> Make sure you read the small print. You don't know if it's a podcast. You don't know if it's an intervention. Things can go very sideways and ruin your life. Happy holidays, everyone. A Freilichanonica Suwalimen. Yep, that's the one. And as she mentioned, it's part seven. It is Cora Livingston part seven. When I started the Cora Livingston story, did I think that it would potentially be an eight, nine, possibly 10 parter? Did I think it would rival the great long series that I have done on the Goldust Trio or Tom Jenkins? I did not anticipate this, but I am loving this. I am What's it like to report the modern day Odyssey? I mean, is it modern, modern day? Well, I mean, it's modern day compared to the actual Odyssey. I mean, if you're going to put Greek classics right. against the the stories of early 1900s wrestling, there's not much <laughs> of a... I was excited to make a very clever comment, or what I thought was a very clever comment, and then I'm like, wait, is this even happy modern? I don't know. Well, let's just say we can make the comparison, because much like Odysseus, wrestlers of the early 1900s traveled from place to place to place, taking forever to get home, and God only knows who your spouse ran off with by the time you get there. So, I get it. It can connect. Fortunately, Cora did have her spouse in tow. Her and Paul Bowser were on the circuit together. We'll talk about that more as we get into this. So sometimes it does work out. And yes, this is part seven, so that implies the parts one through six are existing. And if you scroll down a little bit or up a little bit, I don't know how it appears on your screen, you will find them. And while I'm sure this will be a enriching and interesting story to hear if you're jumping in right now, if you're not familiar with the world of early 1900s wrestling, maybe go back, find out who Cora was, how she became who she was, what her early career was like. So when you get to part seven, all the pieces come together without any confusion or questions. That's right. Choose your own adventure. Today you can time travel or you can stay right here for better or worse. Godspeed. And... The other disclaimer I like to give is that I am doing the best I can with what I have to work with. There is a dearth of information, obviously, about Cora Livingston in the press, but so much of it is gleamed from reviews of matches, from short press interviews that often contradict each other depending on what year they were done in, the purpose of setting up the match, what territory she was in. Also finding like the reviews, the advertisements, the secondhand reports about talking about women who had wrestled Cora in the past. You put all these things together because there was never like, it's not like today where you can follow them on Twitter or see the DVD documentary about them and get the shoot interviews. These things did not exist back then, partially because the technology did not exist. It's not how the world worked on any level. So yes, I am doing quite a bit of detective work and creating a narrative. I try not to infer too much other than what I think would be logical. If it's conjecture, I point out that it's conjecture. What's my opinion? What is the objective facts? And I do my darndest to put it all together and hopefully creating the best biography of Cora Livingston that is existing on planet Earth at this time. And I have a front row seat. 
So where we left off last time, she was up in Maine, she was presented as a big star, it was the first time she had been lured that far north. The referee was also the promoter, the promoter allowed himself to take some silly ref bumps, and she was presented in a clean match, going over cleanly, none of the eye gouging, biting, headbutting, attempted murder type stuff that she had been known for for so long. And I feel that that was an attempt to make sure she was rebookable in the future. They wanted to make sure that women's wrestling made a good impression on the people, the politicians, the women's groups of Maine. So, so what you're saying is Cora underwent a face turn. Yeah, a little bit of a baby face turn and this one. And, you know, that's a thing you do see a lot in the old indie wrestling world is you could have somebody who is an established heel, but they come to your small indie show or come to a different part of the country, shows they're not normally on. And by the virtue that they are popular, they become baby faces. It doesn't matter how hard of a heel they are in many places, by the pop, by the draw, by the excitement, if they turn they're baby... over, brother. Exactly. If they're over, they're over. And you kind of have to lean into that if you're going to sell tickets for next time. So we pick up on February 15th, 1913, where Cora was on the undercard of the Jess Westergaard versus John Kalanis match in front of a thousand fans at the Mechanics Hall Arena in Manchester, New Hampshire. Cora was doing a handicap match beating Elaine Nelson of Chicago in two straight falls, but lost to Mae Wilson by not throwing her in 10 minutes. And if it matters, Westergaard beat Kalanis in two straight falls. So it is interesting to see a challenge match, kind of a carnival-style match, on the undercard of a, you know, big men's marquee-style match, because usually that's a vaudeville hall, burlesque theater type of match, or a carnival Yeah, it's match. like a novelty thing, more so than a sporting event showcase. Yeah, so it was very strange, but also sometimes, you know, as a promoter and a booker myself, you do add variations on the card. If you have, you know, a women's match, you know, you make it a little crazier in these times, just because it makes it a little more exciting, a little bit more of a challenge. Maybe the promoter wanted to set up a one-on-one -on -one match between Mae Wilson and Cora Livingston down the road. Can't tell the intent. Who can say? But either way, I'm sure it was very exciting for the 1,000 fans that got to see it that day. Which is wild. If you think about the fact that that was, I mean, still a big house, don't get me wrong, still a very large draw, but people just went out and did things because there was nothing else to do. Because you think about somebody like Jess Westergaard, who was a star at that time. He wasn't Frank Gotch. He wasn't Joe Stetcher. He wasn't... Charlie Culler, he was a mid-level star, a B-level star, but a thousand people still came out to watch him. And today, a thousand people for a non-TV show would be astounding. So well, that would, would be nuts. Yeah, so you have to think about this in these terms. If It's, it's like, yeah, Monday Night Raw, SmackDown, even Impact tapings, AEW shows, draw thousands upon thousands, but... Imagine a show that's not televised, maybe not even being streamed anywhere, and a thousand people show up to watch it. That is good coverage no matter how you slice it, no matter where you are on the card. That's a big win. But it's also kind of how business was back in those days where a thousand people were coming out to shows. And as you pointed out, that was just because going out was the culture. You know, you didn't stay home and listen to the radio because it didn't exist. You didn't watch TV because it didn't exist. It was read about it in the paper, stay home and just read a book if you know how to read, or stare at a mule shitting, or put up with your family. All bad options. Why not put on your fancy hat, head out and go to the vaudeville halls, go to the burlesque theaters, go watch some wrestling. Hell yeah. Great words to live by. All of them. And I thought this was kind of interesting. The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette on February 26th published a notice that, quote, there is a telegram at this office for Cora Livingston, the female wrestler. The female wrestler. Not just a female wrestler. Out of telegrams or anything like Twitter DMs, it was probably <laughs> asking for feet pics. Probably. Pays very well from what I hear. 
June 4th, 1913, Pittsburgh Post. Cora is announced as wrestling all comers, Greco-Roman style, at the Firemen's Carnival at Carnegie on Thursday evening at 9.30. Also in the paper, baseball catcher Eddie Ainsmith is indefinitely suspended for hurling dirt at umpire O'Leary. See, sportsmanship is important, kids. Now that's sports entertainment. That's, that's what I gotta say about that. Very rarely have I seen her name and Greco-Roman in the same sentence because she was trained in catch-as-catch-can. Pro wrestling, by and large, in this era was catch-as-catch-can. Greco-Roman was still on the table as far as entertainment's concerned, but you didn't see it to the same level. This was the era of Frank Gotch. This was on the heels of the era of Dan McLeod and Farmer Burns and Strangler Lewis and men like that. So there was a resurgence of Greco-Roman wrestling as we saw more European immigration and stars visiting the country. Men like Hackenschmidt, George Lurich, Alex Aberg. So the Greco-Roman stars were still coming in, were still draws, were still putting on matches in front of, front of good crowds. But by and large, coast-to-coast, catch-as-catch-can was the norm. It was more exciting. People understood it a little bit better. It had the capacity for more brutality with the submission holds. So it was what was hot. So I'm not sure if the Greco-Roman was a mistake or if there was a purpose behind her doing that. Again, who can say, but I did find it interesting. The Franklin, Pennsylvania News Herald on June 11th, 1913, advertised Livingston and Paul Bowser as appearing at the Great Empire shows the following week. Again, Cora got top billing and was advertised as, quote, Probably no other woman in the athletic world is better known than Miss Cora Livingston. And honestly, I'm kind of feeling like that's true at the time. Well, they keep giving her the, the, the top billing for these shows, and... Now, are you going to create a draw and interest in Buzz because you're saying she's, you know, top, top guy, if you will? Yeah, of course. But also, like, why they, she has to back it up by being the, the top of the card, the main, uh, main attraction. And she had been that way for years, as we found out. So she is somebody who has been given the top billing and has delivered main event matches for years at this point. So yes, uh, she is advertised as the, the top draw. She delivers matches of that quality. She riles up people to that level. And honestly, so many other sports, the doors were kind of closed on women at, you know, at a higher level. So for true professional sports, yeah, I feel like she probably was the biggest star in professional women's sports at the time. Maybe there right. were and, well, sorry, I was just going to say, like, I mean, at the time, women weren't ever really featured. It, and if it, they were, it wasn't for sport. So. Yeah, there'd be like things like a women's bowling league or the women's lawn dart league, you know, things like that. But competitive bowling, while it actually did make the sports pages in those days, doesn't really hold a candle to Cora Livingston being thrown through the window of a painted house in a burlesque hall and then trying to rip the woman's head off and then getting disqualified for gouging eyes or cranking a toehold too long, driving... She just sounds off. neat. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> Cora and Paul Bowser joined the Great Empire Carnival in Bedford, Pennsylvania, according to the August 8th, 1913, Bedford Gazette. Also appearing at the carnival, a dog and pony show, a funhouse castle, King Knitsky and his big illusion show, cabaret girls, motorcycle races, and Lady Fashan, the horse with a human brain. I am so interested in that entire fucking show. Yeah, seeing these carnivals coming to town, and like they were joining up a lot of carnival shows, we'll be talking about that as we move into this next couple of episodes. But yeah, seeing these big advertisements for the wild things they were having at fairs in the Midwest in 1913, 1914, 
They call the Ferris wheel a trip to the clouds. <laughs> oh, such simpler times. Oh. I mean, would we have to face large scale disease and illness? Sure. Uh, but, you know, aside from that. The one downside, the one single the one downside. Side. That's it. Anyway, back yeah. to the topic at hand. Yeah, well, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the romantic idea of the old-timey carnival. So, like, when I read this, I'm like, oh, boy, it's, I was born way too late to run away and join the circus, but I 100% would have ran away and joined the circus. You know what will really cure you of that very quickly, Nick, everyone? Playing a couple rounds of Oregon Trail. Oh, yes. No, the, the dysentery part would be, you know, disagreeable, unpleasant possibly a deal breaker, but it's a fine idea to ponder no matter what. <laughs> On August 11th, 1913, the Altoona Tribune announced the carnival coming there as a benefit for the Knights of Pythias. It's kind of like an Elks Lodge, that kind of organization. For the audience at home, I just cocked my head like, who? When he, he mentioned that. So that explanation was as much for my benefit as it was for you. And if you live in Colorado, there is a very spooky Knights of Pythia cemetery on the outskirts of Blackhawk Central City, kind of an overgrown cemetery in the woods, where I found a very strange Blair Witch-esque like altar thing like all the way back in it, which we discovered with flashlights in the middle of the night, and yes, it was terrifying. Oh, I am fascinated by this. This will be a further discussion at some point. The Altoona Times on August 15th put Cora front and center while promoting the carnival with a big photo of her and announcing the $10 challenge to all comers. So still, she is being portrayed as the star of the carnival. Suck it, Fashan, the horse with the human brain. It's Cora's time <laughs> to shine. So she was doing the carnival wrestling tradition where she was taking on all comers with probably all the carnival tricks that had existed for decades if not centuries and she was again she, maybe it was partially a little bit of a freak show attraction it was something that was novel but still they were hinging a lot of ticket sales on Cora's appearance there so Nick question for you We've been covering Cora for a while now, so occasionally I lose track of time as uh, well may our audience. About how long has Cora been in the biz now and performing in this uh, at this scale? Well, well she, she debuted, debuted in 1905. So, so this is, is almost 10 years, years into her career. We're, we're getting close oh, to a death. She's a fucking worker. Yeah, she had her debut in 1905. She started having her big matches just a couple of years later. Had her big match with Laura Bennett in 1910. So she is very deep into her career at this point. Well seasoned. By October, she was back to working with the Jardin de Paris girls troupe, appearing at the Grand in Fairmount, West Virginia. According to, shocking, the Fairmount West Virginian on October 9th, 1913, advertised alongside Paul Bowser and La Belle Helene in The Devil's Bride. So again, she's gone from the carnivals back to the burlesque hall troops, where you would go watch a night of entertainment that would include comedy, plays, a burlesque act, some chorus girls, a musical number, and then a wrestling match which again is just the weirdest mushroom trip of entertainment mishmash possible. Well, yes, um, but at the same time, it just goes to show how diverse wrestling is as a art form, sport, sports entertainment. Like, it fit in perfectly well in uh, all of those various venues. As somebody who runs a show that has blended pro wrestling with stand-up comedy, and another show that blended live music and pro wrestling, the art forms are not necessarily exclusive to the type of energy and the type of entertainment that people are wanting to see. And sometimes when you have it varied, it makes things stand out even more. Because sometimes if you're watching all these other things and then there's a wrestling match, 
it really makes you focus in on the insanity of a wrestling match because nothing has been that crazy yet. It's like when you have wrestling at a festival, people are watching a cover band play some yacht rock tunes or whatever, or go over and watch a dog race, but then when you start firing up for the wrestling match, everybody comes running because that's going to be the craziest thing you're going to see that day. So a lot of times if you have Cora close the show, it's the most exciting, crazy thing, so you leave probably feeling 10 times more emotionally satisfied than you would have otherwise. Yes, you summed it up perfectly. I have nothing to add. I, wh what do I say, guys? I Bravo. In early November, the Jardin de Paris troupe was in Greenville, Ohio at Trainer's Opera House. Again, Cora was top-billed wrestler and Paul Bowser was second. Then onto the Weissed Grand in Muncie, Indiana, and the Grand Opera House in Anderson, Indiana. In Elwood, Indiana, Cora wrestled a local woman who threw her just as time ended. According to the call leader on November 14, 1913, the entire show last evening was above the average and made a good impression upon the unusually large audience present. Then the troop was off to Decatur, Illinois. A note on November 1913. Most of her short bios online list a big rematch with Laura Bennett this month, specifically the 25th. And I could find nothing about this. There are advertisements for her challenge matches appearing in Decatur, but nothing about Laura Bennett either advertised or in the reviews. I consulted with some other history nerds who literally have been looking for source material on this for years and have come up empty-handed. It's possible that it just flew that far under the radar as a challenge match, but that makes very little sense because it would have been a big match between two stars that would have moved tickets. They had already had a big, well-covered, well-advertised, media-friendly match just a few years earlier. So it's possible that the 1913 rematch was just a misremembered match from a different time. Maybe the source articles are just that well removed from the record. Whatever the cause and whatever the truth, I found nothing. So I like to think that it was uh, a government ploy to scrub all record of it from the archives. And uh, they just didn't do quite a good enough job. But just a subtle bit of gaslighting. I like it. Yes. Yeah, or like yeah. very specific gaslighting too. <laughs> yeah, we're going to fuck with the whole Matrix thing. You know what we're going to do? We're going to remove a super obscure wrestling match in 1913 <laughs> and just see if that starts the dominoes falling. The fucking Mandela effect is in play here. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere in the multiverse. It just kind of leaked through as a variant. <laughs> Another story from 1913 is the Paul Bowser and Cora Livingston uh, they got married that year. Zero reason to doubt that because they were married. And it would not have been a big public spectacle, like a wedding of the stars type of thing. So, hey, you know, kayfabe, Carney's traveling, not exactly to make the papers when Paul Bowser and Cora Livingston sneak away from the fireman's carnival to get married by conjoined twins at the freak show. I don't know how it went. That's kind of what I want it to be. I, I want it to be that too. Yeah, it would be a beautiful moment. But yes, the the lack of evidence or context or even anything about a 1913 rematch with Laura Bennett, maybe it's out there. Maybe somebody is sitting on that article and just nobody else has found it. Again, I talked to some other wrestling historians who are like, yeah, we have looked forever for that and we can't find it either. And again, I do have to kind of address that there is a bit of a wrestling dark ages. And I mean that because, you know, that's why modern historians refer to the dark ages as late antiquity or the early middle ages, because it doesn't mean that nothing was happening. It just means that record keeping was very bad at the time. So you do have these eras and these wrestlers and these stars where there is a certain amount of information missing, where the stories are sometimes second, third hand. It's a game of telephone. It gets the wrong year. It suddenly one match turns into two matches because the stories have been told so many times they assume it's two different matches. Can't say for sure. All I know is I found the time and place where Cora was and there was coverage about what she was doing 
but literally nothing about Laura Bennett strolling in and asking for a rematch. Lost in the Temple of Time. If it ever existed at all. <laughs> and moving into 1914, from the Boston Globe on February 1st, Cora is back at the Howard, describing Cora as five foot four, 135 pounds, and having over 100 matches, which, judging from how we've described things over the last several episodes, is probably a massive understatement. I was just about to say, that seems like so few for how much she was working. Yeah, 100 matches is probably what she clocked in six months. That's probably what her cage match said, guys. Oh, her cage match is like just nothing. I looked it up just to see, because sometimes <laughs> that actually is a an interesting resource for old-timey wrestlers. Like, they have a lot of Frank Gotch matches and Tom Jenkins matches and things like that that I kind of used as reference material turns out some of them are very wrong um but <laughs> at least it gives you kind of somewhere to start cora livingston it was like one match in there and i couldn't even tell you who it was it was it was a, it was completely useless but at least she has a page so good for her yeah snaps for girly i guess on february 3rd 1914 with the boston globe quote tonight miss livingston's title will be in danger for if she wrestles Eva Schaefer of Cambridge and Mr. Anderson says that Miss Livingston will be treated to the surprise of her life. Eva lasted the full 10 minutes without being thrown. Wow. So again, you know, you, you, you hype it up, you make it sound like Livingston has finally met her match, but then all it is is just her outlasting a time limit challenge, no actual threat to the belt, status quo, maybe selling wolf tickets a little bit, but I'm sure everybody went home feeling good about things. On the 4th, the Boston Globe hypes Cora versus Fanny Lewis, whom Cora had to throw within 15 minutes or forfeit $25. Quote, Miss Livingston will be given a big surprise that the Lynn girl will have no difficulty in defeating the champion. Again, her opponent made it to the time limit, and since that was the second time that week, I don't really feel like it was a big surprise. Yeah. Kind of underwhelming. The Boston Globe on the 8th advertised rematches against both women, with the forfeit going to, quote, some worthy charity if the match hits the 15-minute mark. And I couldn't find the results, but since charity money was on the line, I have my suspicions. How many charity shows do you see in pro wrestling where money actually goes to a charity? <laughs> hey, guys. Spoiler alert. Zero. Maybe like one a year. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, modern independent wrestling is rife with goofballs who probably have like a, they're coming from a place of a good heart and say, we are trying to raise money for this charity. Or this person. Or this person. Or this yeah, this this injured yeah. wrestler, this sick wrestler, this sick child, this everyone's favorite audience Ugh. member who fell down the stairs, the shelter where the promoter got his pet chimpanzee, like whatever the hell it is. And usually... These are the worst shows on earth. They can barely draw 25 people. They probably think they're going to draw 500 people because it's, quote, for a good cause. And then they're sitting there looking at the, you know, 20 bucks in, their, in, the, in the till after they paid out all the talent and then just block the number of their contact at that charity. Yes. That sounds, that, that sums it up pretty much, guys. There you have it. There is uh, Independent Wrestling 101 with Pro Wrestling History, nerds. Yeah, the only time I ever did a charity in uh, 2020, I actually did have a show planned that was going to be a Planned Parenthood fundraiser, but it just kind of got washed because of COVID and that's how life goes. Um, the only time I successfully did a fundraiser was when a wrestler broke her collarbone at one of my shows. And needing collarbone surgery in the United States, even with insurance, is an expensive thing. Fortunately, it worked out a little bit. You know, we were able to give her like $1,000, which I know doesn't cover the whole thing, but it does. Oh, it helps, yeah. 
And I was so nervous because, again, I've seen so many charity shows that turn into train wrecks. And then you're just like, here's here's eight dollars. Hope that hope hope it I helps. Hope that helps. Anything helps. Well, there was a show in Wyoming that I will not name by name, and they made these like beautiful custom belts that must have cost a couple grand altogether, and then brought in talent from surrounding states to do a fundraising show for like whatever area was hit by flood damage in Wyoming. And I saw photos. There was like 25 people there. There were more people backstage than there were in the audience. And all I could think is whatever those belts cost, you could have just given that to the cause and done way more good than trying to put a wrestling show as the interlocutor between point A and point B. There are a lot of good-hearted, well-meaning idiots in wrestling there's also a lot of terrible hearted idiots in wrestling but there's also just a lot of idiots in wrestling that there are let's get back to this idiot in wrestling no she sounds lovely from the vermont union journal march 18th 1914 hyping cora livingston versus miss louise at musical hall in lindenville vermont quote And by the way, Miss Louise ruffled up Cora at the Howard, and it ought to be some bout. The ad also mentions lithos of Cora Livingston, so we've officially got old-timey 8x10s for sale. So yeah, they were actually selling selling portraits of Cora at the show. She now has merch. Hell yeah. Moving on up. And some people do think it's strange. Like, there are merch that, like, the average person understands shirts, hats, you know, things like that. Eight by tens. If you're not kind of weird. Yeah. If you look at it objectively, it is kind of weird that like you want to buy a big glossy photograph and have it autographed. And then like, what do you do with that? Like what, what is. Well, so when I first started watching wrestling, it wasn't really like, I didn't really watch wrestling as a kid or anything like that. Like, I mean, the video games and stuff and like wrestling was cool wrestling, whatever. Um, but I didn't really start watching until 2011, 2012. And it was mostly because I had some buddies and we'd go to indie shows because they were huge wrestling marks. And so now, you know, says me. Um, so we go to the wrestling shows and the, all these indie wrestlers would have tables and they'd be selling fucking pictures of themselves. Like, what the fuck? And now I'm a person selling pictures of myself. So here we are, full circle. But also, like, it's just really lame, guys. The thing I thought was funny is, I think it was Tokyo Joshi Pro was selling, like, like it was like something where they were selling images to be your wallpaper on your phone. And all I could think is, yeah. guys, do you not know how screenshot works? <laughs> how how save image works because yeah you can just make that your screensaver you don't you don't need to like sell a specifically cropped digital image yes specific resolution march 18th 1914 bennington evening banner vermont advertisement wrestling match catches catch can for championship of the world miss cora livingston versus miss fanny lewis Forrester's Hall, Bennington, Vermont, Friday, March 20th. 50 cents general admission, reserve seat, $1. $1. All right. And as to the review on the March 21st, 1914, Bennington Evening Banner, female wrestler, about 100 men attend athletic exhibition in Forrester Hall. Quote, the Livingston woman, who weighed at least 30 pounds more than her opponent, secured two out of three falls and was declared the winner. And is that trying to make excuses for her opponent or just trying to body shame Cora? I was just about to say my tactic for winning is usually being about 30 pounds heavier than my opponents and, you know, getting the most falls, not because it's a two out of three falls match, but because I'm clumsy. (laughs) Ah, Good one. Well, in marketing that way is good for keeping stars intact because, again, Cora is moving on the next week, the next month, whatever, and who knows when she's going to be back. 
but the person she beats if she's not kayfabe and doing a part of the traveling troupe and just putting her over under different names like lots have beforehand. It's a good way to keep a person intact to be like, oh, you know, yeah, they lost, but how could they have won? She had 30 pounds on her and she already had a, you know, dislocated thumb so she couldn't grapple. You know, you set up the handicap against the bigger opponent. So it still creates a heroic effort trying to beat the bigger opponent to keep them intact as like a local lightweight babyface, so that then, you know, their their stock really doesn't take too much of a hit. Like uh, David versus Goliath, but like if Goliath still punched David shit in at the end. Exactly. It's like watching a lot of early ufc is like when there was no weight classes and there was shit happening that no sane promoter should have let happen where you would just by default you would cheer for the little person when you'd have right. oh here comes a, a good wrestler who weighs 180 pounds versus a six foot six 280 pound monster and you know those smaller more technical wrestlers throwing everything at the wall they're just but, so scrappy yeah they're just, they're so, just scrappy. so scrappy they do their darndest they do. They just try so hard. Yeah, and, and psychologically, we always want to root for the underdog. It's just how we work. It's how our psychology operates. So this is a great way to lean into that to set up future business and keep somebody intact. And here's a fun one. An amazing ad in the Boston Globe on March 29th, 1914, when she returned to the Howard the Howard always had the most wild advertisements. Case in point. Prove it. Okay. Cora Livingston lamp. Lamp is simply the slang dope for peepers, blinkers, squinters, and lights. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> I, look, I know you forewarned us particularly me uh but uh that caught me a little off guard so i'm gonna need you to uh restart that one cora livingston's lamp lamp is simply the slang dope for peepers blinkers squinters and lights <laughs> if your lamp department isn't on the blink your incandescence will butt at full glow this week Cora livingston the champion lady wrestler of the world who takes them all into camp at the wrestling game Toots that the going is so soft with Boston wrestling girls that she'll just slip into the Howard, size them up, make them hit the mat, and then collect. Cora was always strong on the vapor talk. She says she will tackle them from all the skyscrapers to the cottage variety. I'll make them all bite the dust and hit the trail. She was at the Howard through at least April 10th. So I, it's just the most carnival barker, old-timey radio... <laughs> It sounds like somebody is announcing that Dick Tracy is on the case. <laughs> I, I need you to start announcing me with that entire article. That's that's my new uh, aspiration. Wow, guys, what a fucking trip! That uh, that that really hit home for me. From the May 29th, nineteen fourteen, Salem, Ohio News advertisements for the faux spring carnival and it was like capital f period o period e period spring carnival june 1st through 6th faux sounds like they should be thwarted by shield james bond or possibly inspector gadget yeah bad guys right a bad guy organization yeah i mean faux sounds like it should just be like the legion of doom as in like lex luther like, and dc like fiends over earth yeah, it, ooh, ooh, there we go. Yep, the fiends over yeah. Earth. So, yeah, so the Carl Livingston might have joined a supervillain group on this, and who can say we weren't there? I like to think so. But on this carnival, there was a Wild West show, a motor dome, a trip to Mars, Congress of Living Wonders, Dog and Pony Circus, and, of course, Cora Livingston and Paul Bowser doing challenge matches. And for those of you who have no like, idea or interest in like how carnivals were at this time, when they say there was a Wild West show, this was the, the 
Buffalo Bill style thing where it would be, they would actually have like swarms of Native Americans, uh, not the term they would use, but it would be, they would hire lots of tribal actors who would come in or maybe just Italians wearing, uh, wearing feathers. And they would have full-blown reenactments of the Little Bighorn. They would have an Annie Oakley-style sharpshooters. Oh, Annie, get your gun. Yeah, these things were closer to Roman Colosseum events than your average circus event. So, I mean, this was ten times wilder in this Wild West show. Ten times westerer? Oh. You said ten times wilder. I said ten times westerer. <laughs> the South Bend Times, June 8th, 1914, advertising Miss May Harris, a woman who would wrestle any man who weighed 140 pounds at the carnival, though she herself weighed 160. She was being promoted as having thrown Cora Livingston at some point, so we see another pattern. Cora is the standard which every other woman was judged by, so the best way to get some attention was claiming to have thrown or beaten her. So the best way to say, I am a badass woman, is to say, I outlasted or beat Cora Livingston. And let's also bask in the awesomeness of 1914, where an intergender shoot matches were happening. She was accepting challenges Same. from any man who weighed up to 140 pounds, which was a lot more common in those days. Yeah, but absolutely insane when you think about how, I mean, intergender wrestling is more prolific than it, I say it used to be, I guess, uh, not really in this scenario. Uh, you know, you see it more now, but still it's not mainstream. Uh, it's still pretty infrequent. Yes, what kind, what kind of awful degenerate show would let men and women wrestle each other in Denver, Colorado? <laughs> I don't know. I would never do that. Yeah, what kind of maniac promoter just decides there's only one belt and everyone has to challenge for it? That's right. Put it <laughs> over That's right. I'm going to put it on Heidi Howitzer. Mistakes were made. <laughs> Ooh. From the Coshocton, and I am sure I said that wrong, Ohio Tribune on... June 11th, 1914, recounts that Livingston and Bowser were accepting challenges at the carnival. The carnival was then off to Bickerus, Ohio, according to the Bickerus... Great name. Yeah, I probably am saying that wrong as well. Somebody will correct me, and rightfully so. But from the Evening Telegraph on June 22nd, 1914. Also on the carnival, a joy wheel, obviously a Ferris wheel dubbed, quote, a trip to the clouds, and, quote, Cuban twins, a puzzle to scientists, two girls, two heads, two arms, two hands, four legs, four feet, one stomach, joined at the abdomen by human flesh, 13 months old, alive and living. That sounds like a mix of uh, a, I don't know, maybe like an X-Files episode and a Bop It commercial. Yeah, I'm just kind of like horrified that this circus was entrusted with a 13-month-old conjoined twin set. Singular? Is it a singular or a plural? I don't know. There's two heads. I... Is it like a royal weave? Yeah, there we are. And I also like alive and living, and they might as well have said dot, 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 for now. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. I'm just picturing a carny with like a bag of hot dogs yelling, Hey, boss, what do we feed this thing? <laughs> fuck you think they should have done a romantic comedy called like two heads one heart all right i'm gonna get canceled cool fix it in post and this just caught my eye september 5th 1914 kansas city star the words come that Zabisco, the immense Polish wrestler, is in jail in Russia. It must be some big jail. So, yes, they were completely making a joke about this. The fact that Zabisco, uh, Stanislaw Zabisco, for those of you who didn't listen to the Zabisco Goldust Trio era episodes, he went back to Poland and Eastern Europe as the seeds of World War I were beginning to unfold. 
he ended up getting caught up in the Russian Civil War, which was not a good place to be. He spent a lot of time in a Russian prison while the Bolsheviks and the White Army were battling it out city by city. Seems like a bad time. It was not a good, not a good place to be. It was not, you know, not getting a five-star review on Yelp for sure. This was a nightmare. And when he did return to the U.S. after World War One. If you saw photos before and after, you would assume he aged 20 years as opposed to just a couple. So yeah, it's a very glib thing because by the end of the war, Stanislaw Zabisco, Alex Aberg, George Lurich, and other big European stars were caught in the middle of this, were imprisoned, were refugees, and some like Lurich and Aberg never made it out alive. So yeah, I understand them being, that kind of discounting the wackiness of Europe falling apart, but it was an outright catastrophe. It was a tragedy. It was a nightmare for everyone involved, and a lot of people died. So, yes, maybe the glib tone wasn't the right way to do it, but it was, I guess, a funny idea to see the immense Polish wrestler being put into a tiny cage in a Russian jail. Ah, uh, dark humor. On November 17th, 1914, the Fairmount, West Virginian, an article about a big show at the Grand Opera House on the 19th with, quote, three high-class bouts, any one of which should prove a big attraction for any championship match. No expense is being spared to give the patrons the best that money can secure. In the final bout of the evening, Paul Bowser, who is well-known here in sporting circles, will meet Alexander Buck, the Polish wrestler. Buck is heralded as one of the greatest Polish wrestlers in the world today, and Bowser will meet a man worthy of his medal. Cora Livingston, the champion lady wrestler of the world, will meet Miss Grace Brady of Pittsburgh. This is a rare opportunity of seeing lady athletes in action, as Miss Livingston is the champion of all lady wrestlers and the holder of the Richard K. Fox championship belt. The only wrestler whose photo was included, of course, was Livingston. So, and again, we have the reference to the Richard K. Fox belt, not necessarily the case, but we understand how the lineage led up to Korra. We described that, I think, in the last episode. But again, you have this big description of Paul Bowser and this Polish wrestler. But again, how are they selling tickets? They're doing it with a photo of Korra front and center. They're making her the draw. Whether she's in the main event or not, putting her image on the graphic in the paper is what's moving tickets. Put butts in the seat. The Wheeling Intelligentsia on November 20th, 1914. Heck of a review. Good wrestling. Excellent bouts were staged in Fairmont last night. Paul Bowser beat Alexander Buck, and Cora Livingston beat Grace Brady in two straight falls, seven and eight minutes, respectively. And I do want to point out something at this juncture. How long has it been since you have heard about Cora getting disqualified or throwing elbows or gouging eyes or pulling hair as opposed to this where she is now yeah. just getting clean wins. It's no longer being the spectacle of the violent psychopath, the person who's cranking a hold too long, trying to hurt people, being dragged off the mat by a, by a referee while the- You mean she's no longer been a dastardly heel? Yeah, her- dastardly heel her cartoonish heel days seem to kind of be behind her i mean yeah she's been doing this for a year she's very well established she's no longer like the young firebrand i feel it's a combination of just her name was well established enough that she didn't need to do that and she was touring enough that she didn't need to kind of burn the house down on the way out so people will be enraged when she comes back plus I feel she's also kind of hit those vet years of being like, all right, kid, this is what we're going to do. Um, we're going to do seven minutes. Um, I ain't doing this. I ain't doing this. I ain't doing this. I'm all that sounds, like, sounds like one of my matches. The Pittsburgh Post on November 22nd, 1914, announced Cora returning to the Victoria Theater the following week. May Nelson, who, quote, has been hurling challenges at Miss Livingston for the past couple of years, probably will be matched against the champion some night this week. Miss Nelson has just returned from a vaudeville tour around the world, meeting all comers, and has defeated the French and English champions, also a Jap girl, who, although small, proved one of the toughest propositions of her tour. 
The article recounts how Cora beat May Nelson the previous year. And yes, I'm going to 100% say, I don't think she had a tour around the world and beat champions in France and Japan. I'm going to just say I'm doubting that. Yeah, that seems unlikely at that time. Especially with the accompanying turmoil. Yeah, it's, yeah, the world was not a safe place to travel. Um, England, maybe. France, probably not. This was not a good time for world travel. So, also, it does, though, give that exotic tour vibe when you're advertising her. Because, again, what are you going to do? Get online and check to see if, if she was really Double there? Check. You know, you're going to see her tweeting her photos at, you know, what whatever was the equivalent of Currican Hall back in those days. Maybe it was Currican yeah. Hall. I don't know. <laughs> but because you can't call bullshit, you can plump up a challenger by attaching whatever story you want. They could have said she went 10 minutes with a grizzly bear at a circus in Oregon, and nobody really could call bullshit on it very easily. Those sound like the days. I found an ad in the December 1st Pittsburgh Post promoting Cora versus May Nelson for a $250 purse. And I, of course, found fuck all about the outcome. Because, of course, why wouldn't I? Again, <laughs> we talk about how this is the wrestling dark ages, where you could have had a match that ties a huge rivalry and a huge story together that would have been the big payoff for the for the series, for the match, for the tour, for whatever. But all it had to be was like one interesting baseball thing happened that day and they didn't have room to cover that match. And now that story is lost forever. And if you were wondering how much $250 was back in those days, today that would be the equivalent of about $7,700. So yeah, this was a very lucrative thing if that were real. I mean, clearly she was raking in the dough. She was doing well financially. But when you advertise a match for $7,500, that's going to really up the stakes for how it's promoted, how it's advertised. Because if there's that much money on the line, you know these women are going to kick the shit out of each other because they want that. That is a lot of money. In fact, it's funny. I can In the world of pro wrestling, obviously there was the quasi-shoot element. There was a different dynamic in entertainment as a whole. But good God, I can't even think of many people that make $7,700 a match today. I, I, I demand a raise. In this economy, shame on you. Shame <laughs> yeah. on you. Yeah, I'm about a, more than a century late, apparently. The Boston Globe on December 6th, 1914, announces her back at the Howard. Quote, she makes more noise than a whole brass band when she gets tooting about her ability. Cora says that she can throw them all. The bigger, the harder they fall. Again, I love how the Howard Advertisement Department does things. They know how to write. They know how to spin a yarn. Yeah, their, their copywriter deserves a, like a giant statue outside of the paper headquarters. <laughs> really top-notch work. On a darker note, it's horrifying to find in the entertainment sections, along with wrestling and vaudeville, ads for theater showing, quote, scenes of actual battle in Belgium, motion views of startling realism shown in Boston theater. War is horrifying, and World War I was a new kind of horrifying. So, of course, it turned into a rubbernecking freak show as the first major military conflicts in the motion picture era. Quote, real war movies from Belgian battlefields with bursting shells, charging or retreating troops, and Belgian refugees flying in terror before the German invaders were exhibited all day yesterday. Read an ad from the December 8th, 1914 Boston Globe. So, yeah, they are selling, like, it's hard to fathom something like that today, where if they're like, oh, look, here is, we're going to, we, we have three reels of what's happening in Ukraine and you can pay a dollar to watch it. It's like, uh, this is not, that's, those are lives ruining and being ended. And I would prefer that not be treated as a freak show bit of entertainment. Yikes with a side of, oh no. 
Yeah, unfortunately, that is becoming more and more of a, I guess it's just a, uh, you know, repeating cycle. Uh, seeing that more so now with like Twitter and uh, the accompanying suspects, Reddit and such. And going back to the more fun side of things, another good one from the Howard advertising team in the December 13th, 1914 Boston Globe. Cora Livingston battles to retain championship belt. Tuesday night Livingston versus Bucktail. Wednesday night Livingston versus Turner. To win the championship belt, Livingston must be beaten two out of three falls. And Cora has been doing a lot of beefing that she is the really real of all girl wrestlers. This fact is disputed by Emma Bucktell, Grace Turner, and Fanny Lewis. All have strong backings that they will beat the champion. Cora says that she will make them both look like a couple of misfits. A couple of misfits? Oh boy, like, oh. I, that, those oh were fighting words back in those days, my friend. Those were fighting words. Which is yeah. good because they were fighting. But, you know, still. <laughs> Apt. And I did find an ad that I thought was kind of cool. Across the town at B.F. Keith's Theater, Ethel Barrymore was performing and Sir Charles Young's drifted apart. Ethel was part of the famous Barrymore acting family, which spanned from London stage actor Edward Blythe in the mid-1800s all the way to Drew Barrymore. Ethel holds a special place in my heart for supporting the Actors' Equity Association strike in 1919, that ended the dominance of the Production Managers Association, which put more power and money into the actor's hands. So this very famous stage actress from a very famous stage acting family was a driving force in taking a lot of the financial power away from the producers and the showrunners and putting more of that into the hands and the pockets of the actual performers. So ties in rather well to the recent actors' guild strike. Oh, yes. The recurring cycle strikes again. And another Barrymore family connection to wrestling was in 1883, when William Muldoon, the heavyweight champion of his day, starred with Maurice Barrymore in a production of William Shakespeare's As You Like It, produced by famed Polish actress Helena Mojewski. Muldoon, shockingly, played Charles the Wrestler and put on a fantastic mid-play match with Barrymore playing Orlando. A lot of wrestlers were able to pick up stage play parts when action was needed, and the part of Charles the Wrestler was just a constant go-to spot for whoever was the big wrestling star of the day. Because, hey, you know what? Bring in an actual wrestler, have an actual cool match. It has that crossover appeal of having a wrestling star that might draw in some actual wrestling fans to watch Shakespeare. And it can just be kind of a really weird melding of worlds. So no, The Rock was not the first big crossover wrestling star to make it in show business as a whole. He might be the biggest and the best, but this is a phenomenon you can trace back for well over a century. On February 21st, 1915, from the Norfolk, Virginia Ledger, Star, announcing the upcoming match between Cora Livingston and Miss Mary Poppas, Champion Greek Female Wrestler of America, which is a very specific title. But who wins? Fucking nobody. The Ledger Star on February 22nd reported Pickwick accepts Mayor's Council. Wrestling match between female champion is withdrawn. Quote, oh. quote acting upon the advice of Mayor Mayo, which sounds like he should be in a cartoon world of some kind. <laughs> Oh, is any relation to Patty Mayonnaise? Yeah, Mayor Mayo, the blandest white man they could put into office. <laughs> the management of the Pickwick Club has decided to withdraw the proposed wrestling match between Miss Cora Livingston, claiming the title of Female Wrestler of the World, and the champion female Greek wrestler of America. In a conference which was held this morning, the matter was gone over at some length, and it was pointed out that similar exhibitions had been held in one of the theaters with protest being made. A previous interview had been held with the chief of police, Charles G. Kaiser, who acted under the instructions from the mayor, had informed the manager of the Pickwick that the match would not be allowed. 
It was following this that the conference with the mayor was held, the management taking the stand that a reflection had been cast upon the Pickwick, which was unjust because of the non-interference with another exhibition of similar character. So very old-timey speak, but pretty much saying that, hey, there was a women's match over here, and you didn't shut that down, but you're shutting us down, what the fuck, but I guess we're going to have to go along with this. The same paper the next day, female wrestler will attend match anyhow. Quote, Miss Livingston said to the Pickwick manager that she would be there in a tailored suit and that she would have her wrestling costume with her all ready for use. Furthermore, that if she was not permitted to wrestle, she would be fulfilling her part of the contract and would consider that she had defended her title as champion female wrestler of the world. I love her. As women have been privileged to see the wrestling matches for some time past, the management could not, if it so desired, prevent her from being there. So, she's just saying, fuck you, you know what? I'm going to show up anyway. And I like that they, she pointed out in a tailored suit, as if to just say, also, fuck gender norms. I'm going to show up looking like the tough little critter that I am. And by being here and nobody beat me for this title, guess what? I consider that a title defense, probably with fucking pay me. Yeah, yeah, fucking yes. Fuck you, pay me. On the next page, in a different article, about how the mayor, quote, announced his orders to police chief Kaiser to stop the bout. So yeah, so it, she was mouthing off, like the, the theater was saying, okay, I guess we'll shut it down because the mayor says so. Cora just straight up says, I'm showing up anyway with my fucking belt and tights and what are you going to do about it? To the point that the mayor gets the police involved and tells them to stop the match if they try. Mayor, mayor who? Mayor Mayo. Mayor Mayo. The soggy sandwich of civics. (laughs) Oh, womp womp. I wish that there was a wild story to follow this where they did the match and the police broke it up and there was a riot or some sort of insanity. But sadly, they just went along with the mayor's bullshit order. So frustrating, infuriating, anticlimactic, yes. But I do love the defiance that she still showed to the press, pretty much telling the mayor to go fuck himself as much as she could without getting arrested. And keep in mind, this is a woman who has had matches broken up by the police. She has had matches canceled because of church groups, because of women's groups. So Cora Livingston is uh, OG punk rock. Uh, She is uh, fuck the establishment. Yeah. And keep in mind, this is somebody who is 10 years into her career, almost. And she is still going, you know what? I'm going to tell this mayor to stick it up his ass. And I'm going to show up in a tailored suit, but with my belt. And you know what? I'll, maybe I'll defend it. What are you going to do about it? Oh, you're going you're to sick the police on me? Fucking bring it. Like, she had attitude. And this is insane, again, for 1915 professional sports. It's 1915, and a woman wrestler, a woman at all, is telling the mayor of this town, essentially, I don't give a shit what you say. Fuck you. I'm showing up. And I'm going to have my stuff ready to go just in case to the point where the mayor is threatening to send in the police goons with clubs to break it all up. An inspiration, truly. And inspirational as it is and uplifting as her courage is, we are now out of time for this episode will continue later on. Obviously, again, this is a long series. We've covered a lot of her career, a lot of her life, and at no juncture does it seem to lay off the badassery. At no point have you really seen Cora when she is either defeated in society, pushed out of town, to have anything less than what you called, you know, as you, as you pointed out, a punk rock attitude about it, where it's like, the establishment can eat my ass, I'm going to bring my belt. You know what? If you want to get the police involved, get the police involved. I do not care. She is a ferocious wrestler, a ferocious carny at heart. She is on tour with Ferris wheels and freak shows, touring with her husband, doing challenge matches, all while still going and doing the Jardine de Paris girl tours, doing the burlesque, appearing at theaters all over the place. So yes, 
saying that she was the biggest female star in professional sports of the day, completely valid, completely arguable, which makes it so infuriating and so insane that so few people know about her. That again, she's kind of a hidden figure in sports history where the most you usually find about her is like a little like two paragraph blurb about wrestle, women's wrestling in the early 1900s. So that's why I'm so happy, so excited, so proud that we get to deliver a biography about her on this scale. Oh, absolutely. All gas, no breaks. Cora Livingston, beat, beat, bitch. I assume you're still enjoying the story. Like you're like at this point, if, if there are there still shocks, are there still surprises? Yeah, yeah, constantly. Also, just to rewind, Mayor who? Mayor Mayo. Mayor Mayo. Mayor May, Mayo Mayor being a big old drip on the tablecloth Ooh. of fun. Just lay, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't like that one either. Spread it on a little thick. Oh boy. Well, the bad the bad jokes are piling up, so it's time to take the off ramp before it just gets worse and worse and worse. I uh, will post as much as I can on social media. Again, it's just so much of the stuff about her are like weird long articles. I did find some new photos and some photos of May Harris and some of the other wrestlers, so that does make me excited. There are things I can post. I will be as good about that as possible. We'll have another episode out very soon. I apologize for the delay. I had a bit of a disaster in my house, and let's just say cleaning up water damage is not a quiet affair, so it was very loud in my house, couldn't record. We'll get another episode out very soon, but... For now, just you know, follow us on Facebook, follow on Twitter, on Instagram. I'll put out as much cool stuff as I can, and then you also get to see when new episodes pop up. You probably do that anyway. That's how you got here. How silly of me to even wonder about that. But for now, and for Heidi Howitzer, I'm Nick Gossert. We'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.